Testament. We've been working our way through it for six or seven weeks now, and we finish our studies in Malachi this morning. Once you're there, page 802, I'll pray and then read to us before we think about it together. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in your word that you esteem the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. But we know that's not a response we can manufacture in ourselves, but it is given by your spirit. And so we pray that he might be at work in us this morning and that you might give us minds that can understand what you're saying. But beyond that, a humility to receive what you're saying and that it might shape and change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us, then we're going to start at Malachi chapter 3, and from verse 13, about halfway down the right-hand column there. Your words, this is God speaking to his people, have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You'll keep that open uh, in front of you. There's also an outline of where we're heading on the back of the notice sheet as well that might be helpful. Uh, We know, I think, don't we, that there are are times in life when we come to a crossroads and we know that we have to make a decision. You can um and ah about which university you're going to go to, weigh up the pros and cons. Eventually, you have to decide, make a choice, hope they'll take you. You're dating someone, it's going well. Sooner or later, am I going to get married to them or not? You've seen a house or a car you like, am I going to buy it, am I going to put in 
and offer. And in those moments, we know that our decisions come with consequences, and so we weigh them very carefully. And we've seen these last couple of months that the book of Malachi was written to urge the people of God to make a wise choice about how they relate to him. The vast majority of its first readers were disillusioned and disengaged in their faith. So these are folks who were still turning up to church. They were offering sacrifices as they did then. They were saying prayers, even weeping sometimes, but their hearts weren't in it. And so in their life, that discouragement had turned into disobedience and even into denial of God and his goodness and his justice. How does God respond? Well, God is the God of infinite love, and so he sent his messenger Malachi to first to diagnose his people's failings, seen lots of that, and then to demand that they would respond rightly to him. They'd return to him with all of their heart. But so far, they've not been listening. Six times so far in the book, God has said something, and they've argued with him instead. Now this final section of the oracle is structured to present Israel, to present us with a a final, a climactic choice. They're at a fork in the road. The question is, how are they going to relate to God from now on? It's a decision, we'll see, that comes not only with life-changing, but with eternity-defining consequences. And we've got the three points that are on the sheet as we think about it. First, two present attitudes to God. You're going to have to forgive some truly terrible alliteration at this point. But the attitude of the first is that worshiping God is worthless and of the second that fearing God is fabulous. Please improve on that and tell me afterwards. We meet the first Lord in verses 13 to 15. The Lord says, your words have been hard against me, But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. All the way through the book, they've been maligning God. You don't really love us, God, they've said. You your promises don't mean anything. You're not just. You delight in evil. It's a, it's a weariness to serve you. And still here, after everything that God has said, after all of the encouragement, all the challenge, they persist in this negativity towards God. He calls their words hard in verse 13. These aren't then the, the tentative murmurings of discontent that are muttered under the breath or wandered at in the the quiet of the heart. A true believer can feel those things before God. This is beyond that. This is full-blown, this is unrestrained criticism of God. They're not just talking about God to work through their doubts. They are talking against Him, it says. And the the heart of their complaint is there in verse 14. It is vain to serve God. It is worthless. That's what they think. It's pointless. It is useless. So their attitude is fundamentally commercial. They're saying, what payoff are we getting from a life of godly obedience? We don't think we're getting enough. How are we benefiting from confessing our sin? What's the profit in it for us? You might be thinking already that their attitude then is the the direct opposite of the Lord Jesus. 
who asked, what would it profit someone if they gained the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? But here, these guys are so locked into the present that they can't see any value in serving God. Life isn't the way they want it to be, and so they think that God is at fault. They think they know better than God how to have a blessed life, and so they want God in their life, but they want him to be like the film extra. They don't want him to have the leading role. For them, then, undivided worship is worthless. Their conclusion is in verse 15. Now, from now on, we're going to call the arrogant blessed. That's how back to front the world is in our eyes. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's not uncommon in the Bible for a believer to see the wicked prosper and to struggle with it a little bit. I suspect we can all relate to that, can't we? We have friends who ignore God and seem to have a great time doing it. They're healthy, they're often wealthy, they're often happy, and we're battling for holiness amid a life of struggle and sorrow a lot of the time. And so with the psalmist, we can think, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But what you find with with true believers in the Bible is that although they start there, they then wrestle with those thoughts. They, They remember that God is good. They remember that his word is true. They remember that he is reality, not what they can see around them. And so they allow those truths to realign their thinking. And so the place that they end up is in a place of faith. I quoted from Psalm 73. Here's how that psalm finishes. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So that's where this group is is very different. They've seen the wicked prosper. They're having a harder time than they'd like. But instead of submitting their observation, their experience to God's revealed word, they've surrendered to doubt, and they've concluded it is in vain that we serve God. I think we need to reflect a bit more on this negative attitude to serving God, because I think, I think it's pretty common in our day, isn't it? Um, it? It's very obviously there in the world around us. If you were to ask friends who aren't in church this morning why they don't come to church, even among those who believe that God is real, A number will say, I can't be bothered, it's all too much effort, what's the point? What what would be the profit in worshipping God? Same attitude. But if we're honest, a bit like here in Malachi, the world isn't the only place we see this attitude. There are traces of it to varying or, or lesser degrees in our own hearts a lot of the time as well. Hopefully, again, not to the same extent that we're seeing it here in Israel, but probably more than we'd like. Which of us doesn't feel the drudgery sometimes of godly discipline? Stopping to read our Bible again, even when it feels dry. Battling distraction to give ourselves to prayer again fighting against, confessing our besetting sins again, 
starting each new day determined to hunger and thirst for righteousness again, saying yes to a role of service again. What is the, the profit? Or maybe some of us found our way into church in the first place because we, we felt like we needed something in our life. There's so much more to the gospel than that, but maybe we thought, well, I'm kind of attracted by the sense of community there is in this place, and it all seemed so exciting. But actually living the godly life is much harder than we thought it was going to be. And so we're wondering, what is the profit of our keeping God's charge? Is it really worth it? Is it in vain that we serve him? What's the, what's the payoff? That's the first attitude to God in our passage. The second is in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They see what everyone else is doing and thinking, but they speak with one another. They paid the Lord paid attention to them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. I've summarized it. As I've said, as fearing God is fabulous. We're not sure exactly how many people there were in verse 16. And we're not sure if they've been around all along, apart from Malachi, or if they've just woken up and returned to the Lord since the oracle has started. But this is a group who have loved being reminded the things that we've seen these last few weeks, that God is our creator, our father, our judge, our Lord, that he has loved us with an everlasting love. So they've been humbled by this restatement of God's love. Um, they've been blown away by God's desire to open the windows of heaven and rain down blessing upon them. They've been challenged by the call to return to him. And so in their hearts, they fear the Lord and they esteem his name. And we've seen time and again that this fearing of the Lord is the right response to him. It's humbling ourselves before him. It's recognizing his greatness, his goodness, his power, his justice, his love, and it's resolving to worship him in spirit and truth. It's not quaking in terror before him like he's some kind of bully, but it is honoring, esteeming him in the way that he should be honored and esteemed, the great God that he is. And so here we find this second group, fearing the Lord, esteeming his name, and speaking with one another. Uh, we're not told exactly what they're saying. I take it they're speaking the truth in love to one another. I take it they're encouraging each other to honor and to serve the Lord, which is something that all of us need all of the time. And you'll find that you struggle spiritually if you try and live the Christian life in isolation, either not going to church, not meeting with God's people, not getting together and talking about these things. Hebrews says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So much as it's great, this means, um, for us to talk about work and sport and kids and films and holidays and houses when we catch up with one another. This is a reminder, isn't it, that we need to get beyond that in our friendships and in our life groups, and we need to make sure that as, as iron sharpens iron, we're actively helping each other to grow in our loving, fearful, awe-filled response to Christ. Without that kind of help from one another, we're just like plants that haven't been watered. Um, 
it's hard to remember plants that haven't been watered after the deluges of the last few weeks. But you know what they're like in the summer if you leave them out. They get all crusty and dry. That's us spiritually without this encouragement. But with it, we can bear fruit for the Lord. And I love in, in verse 16 that, that they speak to one another, but it says the Lord paid attention and heard them. They weren't even talking to God, apparently, at that point. They were talking to one another. But just as he'd heard their hard words in verse 13, now he hears their faithful words in verse 16. And I take it, therefore, that our Lord is delighted when we encourage one another. So you're sitting in a coffee shop with a friend from church and you're encouraging them to keep trusting Christ or you're, you're sharing something that God's been teaching you or challenging you about. Maybe you're even challenging them. And you know the Lord is listening to your every word. Well, you're in your, your small group and you don't think you've got anything particularly profound to say and you don't think you're saying it particularly well. You're just talking about how good Jesus is. And the Lord is listening and delighting. You're leading Sunday school, you're trying to do Bible time with your kids at home and the kids have got their fingers up their nose and it, it, to all the world, it looks as though nothing is going in at all. But the Lord is listening and smiling upon you. And he says to an angel, um, hey, write this down in my book of remembrance. I want to have a record of it for all eternity because Sarah just said the most lovely thing to her friend. Sam just encouraged someone to trust me. It's not that God could ever forget our good deeds. He chooses to forget our sins, but never our service. Here, though, he gets it all written down. I don't know whether that's metaphorically or maybe I suspect literally, but it's a sign of how he delights in your service of him, how he wants to remember it forever, how he wants to reward you. So two very different attitudes to God and the obvious question, and you're going to need to take time to, to stop and think about this prayerfully before the Lord, but which, which is the summary of where your heart is at? before him right now? Where is my heart when it comes to serving God? Do I think it's all worthless, too much effort? Or is it worth it? Is it fabulous to me? And if it's a bit in a bit, then I still need to return to him and to recommit to him. We'll get to that in a second, but first let's consider where those attitudes lead to future experiences of God. And one is negative and the other is positive. The negative is there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so it will leave neither root nor branch. Um, the arrogant, the evildoers, they're the people we met in verse 15, they appeared to be putting God to the test and escaping. And the lesson is, it might look like that now, but it's impossible to hide from God's justice forever. And we know, don't we, that some people think that the big deal in life is what we think about God. The bigger deal is what he thinks of us. And here God warns that the day is coming. I wonder what you make of talk of burning like an oven. 
and being set ablaze. Shocking language, isn't it? But if we choose to be enemies of the infinite and eternal God, we invite upon ourselves an infinite and eternal penalty. It's so easy to forget that Jesus himself, the most loving man ever to walk the face of the earth, talks about hell more than anyone else in the, the Bible, actually. And when he does, he uses the same language of fire and burning to do so. Undoubtedly, there's something metaphorical about it. But the reality to which the metaphor points must be truly terrible for Jesus to compare it to being burnt in an oven. But we've seen, haven't we, that all through Malachi, God is only a reluctant judge. It's the whole reason he sent Malachi in the first place. Return to me, he said. I will return to you. I will open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing upon you. That's what I want to do. So return to me. And here he spells out those blessings. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Almighty Lord says, they shall be mine. In the days when I make up my treasured possession, I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Again, just remember why God's saying this. His people have observed that there doesn't seem to be any difference in life, uh, in the, the prosperity and the welfare of the people who trust God and the people who don't. And they've concluded, therefore, that if, if belonging to God makes no difference, then serving God is too much effort. And so the oracle started with the reminder of the difference that God's love had made in the past. Remember Edom. And now it ends with the uh, promise of the difference that God's love will make in the future when Christ comes again. Malachi says, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked because the love of God changes everything forever. God says, verse 17, those who esteem my name shall be mine. They'll be my treasured possession. They'll be my true Israel. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. No normal dad would ever punish a child for doing the right thing. And so God says, of course I'm going to spare you. I'll make you mine. The language is deeply personal and relational. It's the, the final fulfillment of everything that God has promised. All of the sin, forgiven and forgotten forever. This glorious relationship with the Father. A glorious future in his perfect new world. And you'll see how the, the motivation works. Today you might look at your life and compare it unfavorably to the life of your non-Christian friend. You might think that today but you will not think that on the last day. 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he says that there is before God's people a glory beyond all comparison. Here's how Malachi puts it in verse 2 of chapter 4, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. Son of righteousness, another reference to Jesus. We've had so many in Malachi. 
When he comes again, his light will shine gloriously. He'll bring perfect healing to his people. Imagine that. Perfect healing of body, of mind, and of soul. No more ailments. No more anxieties. No more sins. And Jesus won our healing at the cross but we'll experience it perfectly on that day. And then you love the, the image of calves leaping in verse 2. Our world is, is cursed by darkness and depression, by pain and by grief. Calves leaping, that's just boundless fun and joy and freedom, isn't it? And that'll be our experience in our heavenly home. John Calvin said on these verses, lest the temporary success of the wicked dejects us, God shows us what soon will be. It's as if God is asking us, I know that there are times now when you're not sure whether you want to serve me or not, but fast forward to the last day and ask yourself which side you want to be on then. Verse 3, you should tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So is it in vain to serve the Lord? Is it to, to no profit to endure the drudgery of discipline and fear and esteem him? See how when you lift your eyes to the last day, even to ask the question sounds silly, doesn't it? Of course it's worth it. And so Malachi ends with this all-encompassing command from God in our last few moments. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. It's the conclusion of the whole book. can feel like a bit of an anticlimax. There's been so much colorful language all the way through, and now you're just told to remember um, the law of Moses, but it, it rounds things off perfectly all the way through Malachi. The sins of God's people have been expressed in terms of the covenant uh, that God had made with them. Just like the generations before the ex exile, this bunch of Israelites have turned away from the Lord. The warnings have been the warnings of the covenant, but the covenant Lord wants to bless and not curse. And so having begun with a reminder of his covenant love, I've loved you, it ends with an appeal to return to his covenant law. And this is what returning to God is going to look like. It's going to look like a life of humble, grateful obedience to his revealed word and will. And that'll be true for us today. Um, it, it could be that there is someone here today, and you know that you have been away from the Lord far too far and for far too long. But hearing Malachi's oracle over the last couple of months, even just this morning, has woken you up to the reality of your situation. You don't want to face God's burning anger. Of course you don't. You want to know his love afresh. You want to know his blessing. And so you're returning to him today. And God says, welcome home. Jesus is Lord of all. Listen to him. He's the perfect prophet. Let him turn you away from iniquity 
Let him teach you how to live for your own good and for your glory. And the returning sinner says, Lord, I am yours. Thank you for loving me. Help me to love and serve and obey your son. There'll be others who haven't been away from the Lord to quite the same extent. But Malachi hasn't been without challenge for you either. As Malachi's reminded us of our God of love and of fire. As he's pointed us forward to our great high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he's called us to return into a deeper love for him. We've thought, yeah, I, I need to be closer. I need to walk more humbly before him. And God says, Jesus is a good shepherd. I love you. And so just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and overflowing with thankfulness. Address the things that need to be addressed in your life, confident that he loves you and wants to bless you. Or maybe you have a Christian friend who's struggling to fear the Lord. You see them wavering. You know that they think that serving God is, or it feels, it looks as though they think it's a little bit pointless. They need your help. I want to encourage you to point them back to the Lord of love, to point them back to his word, to pray for them. Because the future is already written and the only question is, are we on the right side of it? That, those two options are spelled out one last time in verses 5 and 6. God says, behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn, that's literally, he will return, same word as chapter 3, verse 7, the, the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Do you see that we're living in the middle of verse 6? Um, if you glance down at verse 6, you can tick off the little bits. Elijah, yeah, he's already come. Um, New Testament tells us that's John the Baptist. Uh, the awesome day of the Lord, yep, that started too when the Lord Jesus came the first time. God's work today is the ministry of reconciliation described in verse 6. It's a bit complex, the turning the hearts of the thing. Um, the reason it's worded like that is that when Jerusalem was under siege in 701 BC, this is horrible, but things got so bad, according to Ezekiel, that some fathers actually ate their own children to survive. Uh, it was ghastly, um, Ezekiel 5 verse 10. This is the opposite of that. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters reconciled, everybody in perfect relationship with God, everybody in perfect relationship with his people as well, united together under his rule. That's God's work in the world today. Which means if you're still following through the timeline in verse 6, the only thing that hasn't happened yet is that God has not yet struck our world with a decree of utter destruction. So just as he was delaying the day of his covenant curse in Malachi's time, now he's delaying this great and awesome day of the Lord. And he's doing it to give more and more people the chance to repent, to return to him. So the future's written. But are we on the right side of it? And what of our town? You could gain the whole world, 
But if you forfeit your soul, still you've lost. And so God says, return to me, and I will return to you. I will love and bless you in Christ forevermore. And if you have returned, friends, of course it's not in vain to serve and fear God with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength. It doesn't always feel that way now. But on the day when Christ returns, we will see the huge distinction between those who serve and those who don't. And all of our sacrifice and all of our service and all of our battles against sin will have been worth it. And so Malachi says, remember God's love. Remember God's word. And recommit to fearing, to esteeming, and to obeying the awesome Lord Most High. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that our hearts are not as united in love and reverence of you as they should be. That even if we haven't turned against you completely, that we continue to drift. And so we pray, uh, giving you great thanks for this clear reminder from the book of Malachi these last seven weeks of our need to return, to recommit, to be reminded that you are the God of love and blessing, that you've got our back, that for all eternity we will know what a wonderful thing it is to have loved and served the Lord. And so in a world that tells us the opposite, and with hearts that often forget, we pray, our Father, that you would remind us of the truth of who you are and help us, please, to remember your love, your word, and to recommit to serving you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, loving you from the heart. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.